Father. So thank you again for being part of that. Everyone, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. That's where we're going to be in our text this morning, Matthew chapter 4. We keep saying this. We have hard texts or hard Bibles, hard copies of the Bible up here. Our interns will come and grab those. Slip your hand up. We want everyone to have a Bible in your hand this morning, whether or not it's a hard copy or a digital copy. And so if you want to pull out your phone, open up that app and scroll to Matthew chapter 4 or pull a hard copy. And here's the reason. One, we think it's important that we, we have the Bible, we know how to navigate around it, and then especially uh, the series that we're in, we've been doing some back and forth dialogue that requires you to be able to, excuse me, continually look down at the whole text and respond to what we're doing up here, so make sure you have your Bibles out. Matthew chapter 4. Now, if you haven't been with us, we're in week 7 of a series called Love Walked Among Us. And we keep giving the same intro every week, and I think it's important for us to never forget why we're doing this series is very simple. We believe God is love. We believe that Jesus is God, so we believe Jesus is love. And so that means 2,000 years ago when Jesus came down to this earth and walked around, that what walked around was the embodiment of love. You hear me? It wasn't that Jesus was loving, although he was. It's truly that Jesus is love that we would not know love without Jesus, that what was walking around was the embodiment of love, not a definite, it was Jesus is the definition of love is the best way to say it. And so what we can do and what we've been trying to purpose ourselves with is over the last seven weeks and for eight more after this is let's just gaze at Jesus in the Gospels. Like Let's just look at his life Let's look at the way he lives. Let's look at the person he is and how that influences us as people, right? How does that influence our affection for, G- for Jesus? And how does that influence then uh, the decisions that we go on to make in light of that truth? And so that's the whole vision for the series. Now, up to this point, each and every one of our stories has been an opportunity for us to look at the way Jesus loves other people, right? So we saw the way uh, Jesus loves uh, the woman who comes and washes his, his feet with the perfume. And we've seen uh, stories of Jesus uh, loving the blind man and so on and so forth. So it's always these stories of how does Jesus love people? Now, this story is a bit different today because this is not involved, this does not involve any other people, just Jesus and Satan, okay? Um, and so in this, what we really try and get down to is this basic principle that love starts when no one's around, Okay? Love starts, love begins when nobody's looking, when nobody's watching. Love starts from behind the scenes. In other words, it's really difficult to be a loving person 24-7, 365, if you're just expecting to react that way, okay? Now, uh, this may be this week, if you're anything like me, and I've talked about this before, but I don't do good on the roads when people cut people off or if they drive bad, and so snow is just a bad formula for my soul, okay? Because people tend to just do stuff that makes no sense. And so literally every day this week before going out driving, I sat in the car and I centered my heart on Jesus. And this is not a joke, to love the way he loves. And so there were so many times this week when people were just doing crazy stuff on the road, and I thought to myself, how do I love them, right? Now, as silly as that is, this is what I'm talking about. Love starts when no one's around, when no one's looking. How are we proactive in thinking this through? That's the idea. Now, uh, Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11, you'll see in bold letters on the top of your text, the temptations of Jesus, right? 
the temptation of Jesus. And so this is going to be this, this great battle between Jesus and Satan that we get to have kind of it's a bird's eye view on, a fly's view on, just kind of look in and see what happens here. Now, this is just a phenomenal reality when we think about it on the front end that Jesus was even tempted, right? That, that God was, was tempted, that God went into the desert and experienced this temptation. It's a, <clears throat> excuse me, a phenomenal opportunity for us to truly see who Jesus is. Because most of us, we crush it when life's going good. It's when trials come and difficulty comes, when we're tired and hungry and frustrated and life isn't going the way that we want it to, that our character truly shines through. And so we really get to see Jesus in this moment. Josh Butler, who preached here a couple weeks ago, said this, and I thought it was phenomenal. He said, these tests that we'll see in this text today, these tests are like the explore, or like exploratory surgery. They open Jesus' chest pull back his ribcage, and reveal what's in his heart. And I love that. And so the opportunity for us to just gaze upon the person of Jesus this morning. So let's look at verses uh, 1 and 2 and get started. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Stop there. First question, dialogue, back and forth. Has anyone, and just, maybe it's just a slip of hands or some nods, right? Has anyone in here ever been tempted by something? Okay? Okay? Has anyone ever acted on said temptation? Okay? Now turn to your neighbor and tell them what you did. Just kidding. Don't do that. I mean, you can, but I wouldn't recommend it in this context, okay? So we can immediately already say, like, no, we get this, right? Like, like, I can understand the story here. Like, I understand temptation, and it's wild to think, no, Jesus, too, understood this. This is God in the flesh understanding what it's like to step into our lives. See, Jesus was the perfect embodiment of humanity, he is the perfect human, right? He fully understands everything and grasps absolutely everything that we've been through. But let's empathize with him for just a moment if we could. See, Jesus comes into this moment led by the Spirit, right? Now, now when, when we're feeling led by the Spirit, this is an exciting thing. So I, I can see Jesus being like, okay, I'm led by the Spirit, yes, into the wilderness, uh, to be tempted by Satan. No! Like, right, like this... Like this excitement, like, oh, I'm following the Spirit, but into the desert to be tempted by Satan? Now, if we go back and back and back, this moment had been building for a long time. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, God creates the perfect world. He creates humanity to delight in it and delight in him. We disobey in Genesis chapter 3. The fall comes. Sin enters the world. There's brokenness. There's pain. There's hurt. By Genesis chapter 4, we're already getting murder, one brother of another. In Genesis chapter 3, here's the moment where I think Jesus, right, they, Jesus is God. We believe God is omnipresent, that he is omniscient, okay, that he's been everywhere. He knows all things. And so it's not like he didn't know this was coming, but I think by Genesis 3, Jesus was like, hey, I'm going to have to go and do something because the rescue plan to restore all of creation really got its wheels in motion in Genesis chapter 3. When God comes into the garden and tells the serpent, hey, the offspring of this woman is going to crush your head. And so in that moment, Jesus prophesied about is on his trajectory to move himself to this moment. Then they call Israel and raise Israel in the Old Testament and say, Israel, we want you to be a beacon and a blessing to the nations. And then they fail. And then you continue to go on until Jesus' birth 2,000 and something years ago, right? Jesus is born in a manger 
to a virgin mother in a context where the local environment and government want him killed. So as a baby, he has to flee to Egypt, spend his time overseas away from home before he's able to finally come back, grows up in Nazareth, which is a town that people say nothing good can come from Nazareth. This is the context that our Savior decides to put himself into. Then he lives for 30 years being raised up, being trained in the Torah, but as a carpenter, he was a brother, he was a friend, he was a son, and he was a worker. And in all of this, building up to this moment, building up to this moment, I can imagine the anticipation of Jesus that for thousands and thousands of years, he's like, I'm trending this way, I'm going to go bless and love the world. And he's born, and then by age 30, he is baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist and inaugurates his ministry, right? And if you just flip back a chapter, that's what you're going to find. Right before Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is baptized and his ministry is commissioned by the Father. So he's in the River Jordan, there's people lining the shores, and the heavens open up. And the father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit of God descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Now, if I'm Jesus, I'm hyped, right? Like, I'm like, finally, it's here. Thousands of years of preparation and waiting to come and to show love and to be the savior of the world. It is inaugurated. How excited would I be? And then the next thing that my father would have me do is 40 days in Yuma (laughs) being tempted by Satan, right? I'd be like, Father, I've been waiting this, and now this? And I really want you to like, think about that, like if you guys have ever had anticipation for anything, but imagine this vacation you've longed to go to for so long. Finally, our family's going to get away. We're going to rest. No work. It's going to be amazing. And then I'm like, yeah, but on the way to Cabo, you've got to stop in Seligman for 40 days. And, and listen, not a dig on Seligman, but a little bit, okay? Um, <laughs> Like, like, just, the, I can't wait. I, this is what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, like, if we're honest for ourselves, and I begin to even think through my own life, like, how would I handle this? How, how would I handle things like not going the pattern or in the time or in the way that I would want them to? And I'm going to be honest. If I just already write on this text, I know I'm not Jesus, okay? Like, I, I, I am not Jesus here, Okay? And maybe some of you are like, no, that's exactly how I handle it. I crush it. Great. That's amazing. I wouldn't. Okay. And so that's the context for how we enter into this, this, uh, this text. Okay. So um, if this story sounds familiar to you already in the first two verses, it's because it's echoing the Exodus story of the people of Israel. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, it says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So Jesus pulls the people of Israel out of Egypt, delivers them, saves them, and then brings them into this wilderness moment for 40 years to test them and see what their response will be. Israel failed. The question is, will Jesus in his own test? And so let's look at verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
So 40 days in, Satan shows up. And I think Jesus knew this was coming, so he's kind of sitting, he's waiting. And 40 days in, hungry, tired, probably just bruised and beaten from walking around the wilderness, sleeping on the ground, okay? Satan comes in and begins to tempt him. And with this first one, he says, listen, if you are the son of God, then make some food for yourself, okay? So let me ask you this question. Let's put it back to you guys. What is Jesus being tempted with right now? Like in what areas? What are the temptations by Satan in our text? And just start spitting them out, right? What? What? Food, right? So there's just physical necessity he's being tempted with. Dude hasn't eaten 40 days. Has anyone here done a 40-day fast? Don't worry, you can just, don't be, won't be boastful or anything. No? Okay? It's tough, right? Like going a whole day, difficult, right? Times 40. Hungry, and someone comes in and says, hey, dude, you want some bread? It's real simple. It's obvious. That's difficult. Okay, what else? What's another temptation? He's fake. Have you said? His faith. Yeah, that's perfect. I can't, whoever said that, where's your face? Oh, way in the back. Hi. Um, right, his faith. Where is your faith right now? Where is your dependence like we talked about last week? Is it going to be in your father? Because, man, it hadn't been around for 40 days. Right? Test his faith. Last one. There's one more. Cause, you don't need to raise your hand. Provide for himself. Provide for himself. Perfect. Right? So, so this, this thing, like, right, the question becomes, if you're the son of God, then do this. In other words, prove yourself. Prove you can do this. Prove you are who you say you are. Prove you are who you've been trying to become for the thousands, all this preparation. Prove it right now and for everyone. Now, these temptations, I think, again, if we just try and put ourselves in that place, this desire that we have to prove ourselves to one another, and that is a rampant reality in my own soul. Would you guys so think this about me? Will I act in such a way? Oh, or how about this? No, how dare someone think something wrongly about me? Right? So there, there's whispers kind of behind closed doors about you, right? And that just, listen, and I'm not saying that's right. That's absolutely wrong. That stuff shouldn't be going on. But man, does it tear away at our souls. We begin to hear, what did you hear? What he said? That's why gossip, is, and this is a nugget for you. That's why gossip is so destructive, guys. If you think it's not, it's a huge deal tears away at the fabric of peace in this world because we know the way the hearts work. So he's tempted with these things. Now, how does Jesus respond, okay? How does Jesus respond? Scripture. In this moment, broken, tired, hungry, his response is Scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, let's juxtapose Jesus' response with the response of Israel, because each one of his temptations, again, mirror that of Israel's. Exodus 16.2 says this, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Their response was to give in, was to complain, and was to judge God because they didn't have what they thought they were supposed to have. 
because they were worried about, I mean, just imagine this, right? Like even in the sense, we escaped, but life is worse now. What must Egypt be thinking? They're probably laughing over there. Life was better when you served us. And so they give in. Jesus responds, though, by quoting scripture from Deuteronomy 8.3, and it says this, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus, while being tempted, refers to Deuteronomy chapter 8, hearkening back to Israel's story to show where Israel failed, I will not. For Israel did not fill up the end of the bargain they were supposed to, I will. That's the first one. The next temptation, verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now notice this, Satan, I think, is a crafty one. And so he sees Jesus' defense, and he tries to use Jesus' defense against him. He says, okay, you want to go scripture? I'll use scripture. And so he quotes Psalm 91. Right? He takes Old Testament scripture, quotes it back to Jesus, but he does so wrongly and perversely in order to try and deceive the one who wrote Psalm 91. Right? So he's clever and he's crafty, a bit dumb, okay? And so Jesus in this moment, how again does he respond? What does he use? He uses scripture rightly and properly, and he responds with, he will, uh, sorry, he responds with, again, is written, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. The context of this is simple. Satan takes Jesus probably to the southeast corner of the temple in Jerusalem, and says, listen, if you would just throw yourself down and angels come up underneath you and guide you and protect you and save you, would not the whole people look upon that and say, that's my guy? What he offers him is fame. What he offers him is status. What he offers him is the kingdom, but without the cross. He says, listen, you can have all the fame, you can have all the renown, you can have all the glory, but you don't have to go to the cross, I'll give it to you here. Now that, right? Let's step into that as a people. How quickly do we long to just arrive at a certain place, right? And we cut every possible corner to get there. So we think, okay, well, I, and hear me, it happens in so many different, I began to think through examples this week. It happens in so many different examples in life. Uh, you know, well, I know I need to provide for my family, and so it doesn't matter if I skim a little bit out of the company, right? That's just a little sin, right? Not a big deal. Take a little bit of money here, okay? Just every little lie, right, that we might tell. It's not that big a deal because it's just a little lie, so I can kind of cut that corner. I don't need to be truthful. I don't need to have an ethical way to my life that is formed and shaped by Christ. It, listen, it's even formed the way we do missions, when you think about missions for a long time in the church, it's like those people need to be saved so it doesn't matter how we go about the work that we do just as long as we get there and we do it. Forget the fact that maybe on the, along the way we might be hurting people and doing it for our own agenda instead of others. Like you understand, like this is just the way that we oftentimes function is just this desire to say we need to get to a place that doesn't matter how we cut to be able to get there. The offer from Satan to Jesus here was like, hey, you could fulfill and get the kingdom 
but you don't have to go through the pain. We've become so desensitized in our culture that suffering or pain could ever possibly have a positive benefit in our life. And you have to understand that that's a very Western mentality. We try and skirt suffering and brokenness and pain. At any po- we'll go to any possible limit to keep suffering so far from us. But guess what? It comes to our front door anyway, and we don't know what to do. Satan says, hey, man, we'll skip all that hurt, all the betrayal, all the pain, and you can have this right now, immediate, immediate gratification, immediate fulfillment. Jesus responds with De- <coughs> Deuteronomy 8, 3, or sorry, no, Deuteronomy, where are we at? Nope, I'm coming to it. Deuteronomy six sixteen. you should not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You see Israel again struggled with this as well. Exodus chapter 17, 1. There was no water for the people to drink, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, then why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted here for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Israel failed and Jesus did not. Okay, you see in the pattern here of the faithfulness of Christ of the love of Christ. Hear me, that love starts, okay, when you're by yourself. Every one of the stories that we've covered, all the six that we've done leading up to this point, come after this moment. That Jesus resolved in this moment to love and to continue to love, to go out after this and continue to live and love the way he decided to here in this moment through faithfulness and against the temptation to go the easy route. Because love is costly. Love is difficult. Love requires sacrifice from you and I. The offer from Satan in that second temptation was, hey, go jump off of this. And there's two options that he gives him. He says, well, it's either suicide, you're going to kill yourself, or if you're God, there'll be salvation. Jesus rejects both those premises from Satan and says, no, I'm going to go with a third and alternative route that you didn't see coming, and it's sacrifice. Say, no, 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 I'm going to continue in this pattern to do it the right way. And hear me, we cannot love outside of sacrifice. To be able to see someone and to love them like ourselves, it takes letting go of some of our stuff, some of our idols, some of the things that we think have to belong to us, just like Christ. The last temptation. Two tests down, will he be faithful again? Verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and, uh, and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. 
Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And so Satan brings him up on another mountain and says, you see all of this out there? I will grant this all to you if you would just worship me. Now, let's ask a question. What is the irony of the offer from Satan to Christ in the third temptation? Speak up. It's already his, right? It's already his. Right? The kingdom belongs to the king. He's already, it's like he made it. Colossians 1 says that all things were made through him, for him, by him. He holds all things together. <clears throat> he is the king of the kingdom that Satan offers to him. The creator of it. Hear me, we are often tempted by things you already have. If you are his, security is yours. You need not seek it any longer. You hear me? If you're his, justification is yours. You need not seek it any longer. You don't need to keep pursuing money over everything because he has already told you he will provide. But you'll get these whispers in your ear from the tempter that will say you need more that will try and tell you that your life is not fulfilled, is not satisfactory, is not, insert your thing. And we will clamor and step on each other and force ourselves to be unable to love the neighbor that we are called to love, love the enemy we are called to love. Why? Because whispered in our ear is you don't have enough when you've had it the whole time. Jesus standing there, he's like, dude, you're offering me the kingdom. That's my kingdom. You can't fool me. I made that. Let's not fall into that same pit. Now, again, Israel struggled with this as well. In Exodus 32, 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They begin to attribute the work of God to lesser idols. Satan says to Jesus, just bow to me and I'll give you that. The idols of our, of our day say, just bow to me and you'll get everything you want. And we hear it and we buy in hook, line, and sinker. Later, dude. <laughs> we get so wrapped up and caught up like, hey, this is, that's true, I do need that. So we begin to worship these other idols and hear me, Israel failed, Jesus did not. His response, Deuteronomy 6.13, it is the Lord your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Jesus, again, returning to scripture, returning to what Israel should have said, should have done, but did not, he fulfills. And he pushes back Satan's foolish offer. And that's what it is. Temptation and sin is nothing but foolish offers to those who already have everything in Jesus. But we become too convinced that we need more. And miss the truth that we are satisfied in Christ. And I'm not saying that's easy. That's a tough, that's a tough daily 
necessary wrestle and reminder we must give ourselves as the people of God. This is who we are. His fulfilled, satisfied, provided for, justified, secure, and loved. If, if, hear me, if, if, we had, if we believe this, right? If we knew the love of the Father for us, if we saw ourselves as loved, we need not seek love in the wrong places. Security in the wrong place, etc. You get the idea. I'm just saying the same thing over and over because I know the hardness of my own heart. I need to hear it over and over and over again because I don't believe it right away. Jesus fulfilled what Israel could not. Now, we look at this story and hopefully we realize we're Israel, right? Like, like we're, we're, we're not Jesus, we're Israel. So, so let me just, uh, let me write, read this to you, write down. See, Jesus passes all three tests, succeeding where Israel failed, but he also succeeds where Adam and Eve failed. They too, tempted by food, by a twisting of God's words. They bowed, down, they bowed down to the tempter when offered the kingdoms of this world. Jesus succeeds here where we fail. We don't trust God. We bail at the first sign of trouble. And we want to rule the earth on our own. And oftentimes we live like we want to live without him. We're not the solution. We're the problem. And so here's the way oftentimes Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11 lands, and it says, this is how you defeat the temptations of your life. And hear me, I'm not saying that there's none of that in there. I'm telling you, it's not the main purpose of this story and this text. The main purpose of this story is not to tell you how you defeat the temptations in your life or win the tests that you come upon. It's to tell you that Jesus already has for you. We look at Israel, we say, we are Israel. We have failed, we have denied him, and Jesus did what Israel could not, and Jesus did what we could not. It's not about you beating every test in your life. It's about embracing that Jesus already has. That he was the faithful servant that never sinned. In the midst of the temptation that you and I struggle with on the daily, Jesus obeyed perfectly. So it is finished, as he proclaims from the cross. You need not continually seek it, even though temptations may arise in your life. You can stand faithful in the firm foundation that is Jesus who did it right on your behalf. That's the gospel. And hear me, you know what the response should be? We can stop just like gripping so tightly and white knuckling our way through righteousness because it's not possible. Now, hear me. Now, when you preach something as hopefully grace-based and gospel-filled as that, we can easily take advantage of that. And there's that fear, right? You're like, okay, well, if I don't need to seek righteousness, I'm not going to seek it at all. Let me eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. Jesus heals me. I got to go to heaven. Doesn't work that way either. Because again, what does Jesus do after he fulfills this moment as he goes and he loves the world? In the first six stories that we saw, he goes and he lays his life down and sacrifices for the sake of his neighbor and the sake of his enemy that they might be lifted up and brought into the kingdom of God. We too now are called to do the same thing. 
a firm just foundation and pushing into the belief that everything that need be accomplished for our salvation and for us to be brought into the family of God, the deep belief that that has already happened and accomplished in Jesus propels you forward into service if you are actually rooted in it. It propels you forward into love. It propels you forward into sacrifice. This is why the Bible will tell us we will be able to judge each other by our fruit. Is what comes out of your life and my life love? We asked this question like in week two, I think, that when you walk into a room as you're embodied by the Spirit of Christ in your heart, is what walks into the room with you love? Do your coworkers, does, you, does your family, when you come home from work, do your kids, do, do the families at the playground, the families where you recreate, when you walk into the room, does love come with you? If we are rooted in a deep foundation that Jesus has done everything for us, everything we could not, the natural response, byproduct, and outflow would be love. And that's what's so great about this text is that we can read this over and over and over and you don't have to leave it and say like, well, I just, you know, I better read my Bible more or I'm not going to be able to pass these tests. Now hear me, you should read your Bible more. You should know what the scriptures say. You should memorize scripture. You should be in it every day. Not because reading the Bible every day saves you, but reading the Bible every day will draw you closer to Christ will tell you these stories and remind you over and over and over, it is finished. I did it for you. Now walk in faithfulness because you can let go and you are free. That's the good news of this story. Christ was faithful where we were not. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, as we land, says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, here's the so what, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. So what's the take home Draw closer to the king. Draw closer to your savior. Spend time with Jesus. Here, like, spend time with Jesus. He is alive. Right? Like, like he came out of the tomb. He's, he's alive. He's living. He's active. And the Bible over and over and over will tell you he is present and so we keep trying to pound this drum, right? but he's here right now. And it's like, it's weird that I'm saying he, like he's, he's not like standing here, but like he's here. He's present with us. Spend time with him. Draw close to him and know that you can do so, not because of what you bring to the table, because of everything that he brought to the table. Everything that he brought to the hill of Calvary. You notice Satan brought him up on top of a mountain a couple times and tried to give him the kingdom that would be won through shortcut. But instead, he goes up on his own mountain, the one where he caused sacrifice to come upon himself and die to death, 
of a criminal, that that way he would truly gain the kingdom, not just for himself, but for all who would come to faith. That's the gospel. That's good news for us, friends. I want to say this last thing. If you're here and you're not a Christian, first of all, thanks for being here. Uh, I know sometimes it can be weird. I, I got saved in college, and so I remember the first time I attended a church with my friends in college, and uh, I hated it. <laughs> it just was like, I was like, this is not for me, okay? Uh, and then I went again and again and again, and I was interested in a girl and, you know, things like that. And so, um, and in the midst of that, God just continued to speak. And, and, and so if that's your story and you're here, again, thanks for being here, and I just want you to know, same thing for you. Please try and just draw close to him, talk to him, press into the questions that you might have. And I'm going to tell you, he did everything for you, and he loves you more than you could ever believe. And he showed it through his life, death, and resurrection. So let's bow our heads and pray and respond to what he's done. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness especially because, Lord, at least I know what it's like to be so unfaithful. Lord, thank you that in all my moments of disobedience that have happened even in the last 24 hours, God, that because of your obedience, God, I can, um, I can walk faithfully, not in judgment or condemnation, but in healthy repentance, God, in healthy conviction, that I might walk this life the way, Jesus, you have. We thank you, Spirit, that you are here and amongst us. And Lord, we also know that we, we didn't save ourselves, so we can't change ourselves. So Spirit of God, we entreat you to come now. And everything we've heard from your word, God, use it to pierce to the deepest parts of us. That we be changed from the inside out. We walk faithful to the calling of love that you've given to the church. That, Lord, just as Christ, you responded faithfully in your temptation, God, then out of that, that that love so propelled you into love of neighbor all the days of your life, God, we pray we would do the same. Jesus, thank you. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen.